0: I think of a South American or Chilean activist who I interview in the book named Juan Pablo Arrego. And he makes the case that I think is worth repeating that in order to inspire people to do these kinds of things, to take on this incredibly difficult work, we have to return to an appreciation of the aesthetic beauty of the natural world. We have to look to the kind of, incredible reverence that somebody like John Muir had for a place like Yosemite and kind of mourn with John Muir, the loss of Yosemite's twin, which was Hetch Hetchy Valley buried behind O'Shaughnessy Dam. Glen Canyon, the namesake of that dam on the Colorado, Glen Canyon was, as I write in the book, one of the most beautiful places, perhaps on the entire continent. And it was buried hastily behind a dam in the early 60s. In order to foster the belief that we can return to some semblance of wholeness, we have to start with the premise that a beautiful thing is worth saving. Welcome
1: to Care More, Be Better, Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring
0: stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host,
1: Karina Balizzi. Hello, fellow do-gooders and friends. I'm your host, Karina Balizzi. I've shared my views on how we manage our open spaces and the problem of an over extractive view on our natural world before on this show. So it will come as no surprise to you that we're going to dive deep into another system that we need to work to dismantle with today's episode. We are going to talk about dams as we get to know Stephen Holly. Stephen is a writer and filmmaker from Hood River, Oregon, my home state. He is the writer and co-producer of an award-winning documentary called Damned to Extinction and the author of Recovering a Lost River. His new book, Cracked, The Future of Dams in a Hot, Chaotic World, releases May 2nd from Patagonia. Steve was among the first to write about the historic agreement to tear out Edwards Dam on the Kennebec River in Maine. Since then, his work has appeared in High Country News, which is one of my favorite newsletters to subscribe to, On Earth, The Oregonian, Missoula Independent, and other publications. I'm honored to bring him to you today, and I can't wait to get started. Stephen Hawley, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks, Karina. Happy to be here.
1: Well, I have to say, I got to spend some time yesterday watching Damned. I picked it up on Venmo for 4.99, and <laughs> just spend an hour being pretty pissed off, to yeah. be frank. You know, when you start to really dive into the world that we have overharvested for either energy or corporate interest or what have you, it's maddening.
0: It sure is. I think what's happening in the Pacific Northwest is a kind of peculiar situation where you have a government agency that markets and sells power from dams on the Columbia. And I guess what your listeners should know about the Columbia is that until those dams were built, most of them 70 to 80 years ago. The Columbia was one of the world's greatest salmon-producing rivers. In fact, it was the world's greatest producer of Chinook salmon anywhere on Earth. And we traded that—we traded that production of marine, sort of fecundness. Marine it was a one-of-a-kind marine ecosystem, rivaled nowhere else in the world. And we traded that for what has become the most hydroelectrically developed system in the world. And mm. I think we've, as you said in your introduction, we've reached a point where we need to balance things out and regain some of that semblance of plenitude on the biological side.
1: Man, oh man. Well, when I received your book, I started reading from the very first page and even just going through the intro where you have described so much the problems that we see in this natural world. Of the importance of our rivers for the health of our entire ecosystems. Something I've talked about before on this podcast is the impact that salmon migration even has on the health of forests because they evolve together, right? And so the salmon, if they're going further and further upstream, they're bringing the nutrition that they gained in the ocean to the rivers upstream. And then they die when they spawn and their bodies feed the forests. So when we impact their ability to get where they need to get, then we're not just impacting the health and tonnage of a salmon population that we can then harvest from the sea. We're affecting the health of the forest. We're affecting the health of the animals that live there, the apex predators, including the bears and anything else that might consume these fish too. And we're just creating stagnating waters. We're taking away what could have been fertile and productive land. For what? Yeah, well, here's an
0: interesting statistic that your listeners might appreciate. Since the start of the 20th century, we've buried a landmass equal to the size of the state of California in reservoirs behind dams. I mean, this is a staggering amount of land that we've lost. And fortunately, what a large part of my... Book deals with, Cracked, is the movement to sort of return some of these lands to sort of the oxygen side of the Earth's crust, right? There's some just absolutely heartening stories up and down the West Coast. I think of the two dams on the Elwha River in outside of, uh, or actually just west of Seattle, Washington, where they took out two dams that were actually built illegally inside a national park 80, 90 years ago now. Actually, one of those dams was more than a century old. And, you know, scientists have been charting the recovery of this ecosystem, most of which lies protected in a national park. And the recovery has just been remarkable. And this recovery has taken place, of course, at a time when the other and maybe the major factor in salmon production, the productivity of oceans, has been on the decline. Nonetheless, the Elwha and other rivers where dams have been torn out are giving us kind of an antidote to a less productive ocean. So it's not only an aesthetically pleasing thing to have a free-flowing river again, it provides numerous other benefits, including economic ones as well. I think of the Kennebec River in Maine, where after several hundred years of the town of Augusta turning its back to the river because it was kind of an industrial sewer, After the Edwards Dam came out, waterfront development occurred and property values rose. So there's almost an incalculable number of benefits to tearing out a dam and restoring a free-flowing river, and that's kind of the gist of the book, although there's some other elements to it as well.
1: So how did this book come to be, as presented by Patagonia Press? And I believe you have also an audiobook coming out through Penguin Random House on May 2nd. Well, if my internet sleuthing was correct.
0: Yes, you are <laughs> correct. I wrote Recovering a Lost River, which is the first book I wrote about rivers and dams. Uh, it was published in 2011. And Matt Stecker, who is the executive producer of a documentary film that Patagonia produced called Damnation, he read the book and was inspired by it. I would like to think that Recovering a Lost River was part of the Inspiration for the film Damnation. But for whatever reason, Matt called me and he said, Hey, we're getting kicked off making this movie. We'd like your help. I had two toddlers at the time and wasn't really in a position to uh, start traveling around the country making movies. So I just gave him all of my information and my blessing. And they produced an absolutely gorgeous film. Came out in 2013. And on the heels of that film, it was suggested by some folks at Patagonia that maybe I'd be willing to write a follow up because in the film, they felt like they caught a lot of the projects that they were depicting, kind of no pun intended, but in midstream. And so I decided to take that on. This is an exciting enough world that I think is worthy of at least two books. And so much (laughs) has happened in the last 10 years that. It's really, I believe, become one of the most powerful tools that we have in the endeavor to restore ecosystems and certainly maintain the ones we have that are still intact.
1: Well, I have to say, I'm an avid consumer of audiobooks. So as soon as it's available that way, we'll get that version too. But I am making the recommendation to my audience to pick up the physical copy because this book has some dynamite pictures. It's beautiful. I mean... It has the smell of a book that <laughs> you just absolutely love. Yeah. But I mean, I know Patagonia is using archival quality paper and they're also using eco-friendly printing. Yeah. So just to be able to share this with everybody, you know, you see the pictures of these beautiful spaces. You see comparisons of where the Colorado River is in 2000 versus 2022. So you can see the impact of evaporation I mean, and that stuff is just very hard to convey in an audiobook. So I think this makes for not only a beautiful read, your prose is eloquent, but I mean, you need to see it. And so I really, I like to caution people to really get out and explore in the natural world and places like this. Look at some of the dams yourself. I mean, some of these are virtually falling apart and yet we just kind of, keep them hanging on, keep them hanging on, keep them hanging on. When I watched Damned late last night and then finished it this morning, I was not entirely surprised to learn that these dams that you're advocating the closure of, especially those along the Lower Snake River, that they are producing more energy than is required. So they actually are producing a surplus. And it's negatively impacting the ability of the salmon to get upriver and then back out to sea when they're in juvenile state. So they essentially end up being food for the bass that's sitting there in these warmer waters.
0: I think the movie that you watched tells a really sad tale of what's happening on up the food chain with a pod, or actually three pods of killer whales that historically have evolved to eat Chinook salmon in the Eastern Pacific. And these orcas spent their summers in and around the Salish Sea, which is sort of off the coast of Seattle, roughly speaking. And in former times, even up into the late 70s and early 80s, salmon were so plentiful that these orcas would hunt for a few hours in the morning, and then they would just frolic the rest of the day. And -hmm. the scientist in that movie that you watched, Ken Balcom, spent 50 years sort of tracking the decline of these whales And probably the saddest chapter in that saga was a mother named Telequa who lost a baby, lost a baby orca. And this mother spent 17 days and swam a thousand miles with her dead calf, pushing it on, you know, with her nose to keep it from sinking to the bottom. And it was, this event got worldwide attention you know, orcas are very charismatic animals. It was covered on all the national news stations. And it also helped people who are interested in the subject make a connection between, for instance, what happens in a stream in Idaho along the Continental Divide and where these orcas historically have gotten their food. Remember that the Columbia in fairly recent times produced somewhere between up to 5 million Chinook salmon every year. And this year it'll be in terms of wild fish, fewer than a hundred thousand. So we're literally starving what has been historically one of the most rich marine ecosystems on the planet in the name of producing power on a river that as you mentioned, produces too much of of that electricity. And especially this time of year, And in a very wet year like this one, nobody really wants it. So it's time to start thinking about doing things in a completely different way. I don't want to make another movie about a grief-stricken orca mother pushing her calf up and down the Salish Sea, showing the world that basically you humans need to start thinking about this in a different way.
1: There was another story told in that film, which is something we've heard about around the globe when you introduce dams. Indigenous populations are often uprooted. And that's exactly what happened in this case. So I'm fully endorsing and hoping that people will go out and go to the Vimeo page and rent this film for 48 hours and watch it as many times as you care to in that time. I was so angry watching the film, even though I knew about these things, Mm -hmm. even, even though I'd Read a fair amount about the things that happen when you create dams with salmons. And I've heard all the stories like, oh, well, we created a fish ladder so they can swim upstream. And so I was really happy to see that you address that in the film. Because for those that don't know, I mean, I've spent more than a decade in the omega-3 space and and fish. I helped to bring to market a Kenai Wild salmon oil from Alaska. I got to understand the, let's just say, overburdened commercial fishing operations that are out there to secure salmon populations and also the illegal fishing that often takes place impacting these animals. And I also visited places like along the coast of Alaska where you would see these fish ladders in operation. And
0: Yeah, (laughs) there's a great movie from Patagonia called Artificial that basically examines that whole world. This idea... Mm -hmm that with the advent of fish ladders and fish hatcheries that we could essentially have our cake and eat it too. We could have dams and hydroelectricity and you could have wild salmon as well. And the fact of the matter is you can't. Mm -hmm. Those hatchery operations are based on an agricultural model of production. And salmon production is not based on that model at all. It's based on diversity and abundance. And so for instance, with uh, Chinook. There's a spring run of Chinook, there's a fall run of Chinook in the Columbia, but probably more significant than that, you know, these animals in evolutionary terms are incredible. Remember that every Chinook salmon that spawns in a stream is genetically distinct from its neighbor in the next watershed over. Every wild Chinook salmon has exquisitely genetically adapted to their place. And so what you do when you build a dam and cut off access to that place and try to replace that diversity with a hatchery is you make it impossible for that key component of a salmon's life cycle, that the diversity, it's impossible for that to take place anymore because when they raise farmed fish, essentially is what they are, they release them all at once, they come back to the hatchery at the same time, and they're simply not adapted to survive in the wild the same way that fish that spawn naturally are.
1: Well, and to my earlier point, they aren't as strong. They can't get upstream, even if they had some earlier genetic coding. And so they're not bringing the nutrition from the sea as far inland. Right. And that has other effects on the ecosystem.
0: Researchers at the University of Washington found that in forests where salmon are present, that tree growth can increase by up to a third. So you look at where some of the world's largest trees are up and down the eastern Pacific coast, the west coast of North America, the redwoods, the old growth Douglas fir forests in Oregon and Washington. Those are forests that were built by salmon. So it's we don't want to give up on that.
1: Right. So if you were to prioritize the dams that we should look to dismantle first, which might they be?
0: Well, this is that's a very interesting question. Since I live in the Pacific Northwest and I've been working kind of as citizen Steve on this issue for quite some time, if I could wave a magic wand and get rid of four dams on the lower Snake River, that would be my first choice. However, for your listeners in California and elsewhere that live in the Colorado basin, there's some really interesting things happening in the Colorado. And it looks like with this wet year, there may be something of a reprieve, but You're looking at two reservoirs on the Colorado system, Lake Mead and Lake Powell, that are each less than a third full. And with longer summers and increasing rates of evaporation and lower precipitation totals, one of those, the reservoir behind Glen Canyon Dam, which is Lake Powell, has reached kind of a tipping point. And that tipping point is there are intakes for the hydroelectric turbines at that dam and Probably the first tipping point is if the level of the reservoir keeps dropping, it's not going to be too many more years before they can't make electricity there anymore. (laughs) But the bigger problem, quite honestly, is that once the level of the reservoir drops a little bit beyond that, the Colorado River will cease to flow. In other words... There is no way for the river to get below the penstocks of the hydroelectric turbines. That's where the water spills in and down on the turbine and makes it spin to turn electricity. When the reservoir drops below that level, it has to drop another 90 feet before it gets to the outlet works. And right now, the Bureau of Reclamation is hastily trying to figure out ways that they can make a new bypass tunnel or do something to prevent the 30 million people downstream of Glen Canyon Dam who rely on the Colorado River from being impacted because this is a disaster unfolding. They just never anticipated that we would enter this period of dry years and that there wouldn't be a way to release Colorado River water other than through those penstocks. So this is a serious dilemma And it's also given an opportunity for, I think, of people like Gary Walkner, who runs Save the Colorado, and has been advocating for the removal of Glen Canyon Dam for many years now. And other people that are doing this kind of work saying the cheapest solution to your trouble on the Colorado is to get rid of Glen Canyon Dam. And, you know, so I have my wishes about which dams I would like to see come out. But, of course, our climate chaos is making some of those choices a little perhaps a little easier to make.
1: So I do know too that there are other dams closer to me, like even those that are, I think, feeding San Francisco's drinking waters, sure. for example. I believe there's a dam out on the Tuolumne mm-hmm. or somewhere near there that supplies their water. And San Francisco prides themselves in having the nicest, tastiest drinking water that's completely pure because of that. Yeah, What do we do about city populations that rely on these water sources? I mean, when you're talking about millions of people and the potential removal of dams, which could impact their drinking water supply.
0: Well, I can think of two things. One, the amount of evaporation that is coming out of reservoirs, especially in hot, dry places, places that by all measures are inevitably going to become hotter and drier it doesn't make sense to store drinking water or any kind of water for municipal, industrial, or agricultural use in a reservoir. In the book that I just wrote, Cracked, there's a chapter about evaporation. And some of the latest science done by researchers at the University of Colorado have calculated that annually, the standard rate of evaporation, the one that the Bureau of Reclamation used for years, said it's 10% annually. You lose about 10% of the water. That's just the cost of doing business. Well, what these researchers have discovered is, is actually twice that or more. And it, it inevitably, it's going to grow because we're getting hotter and drier. And so you look at the amount of water that you're losing in a giant reservoir, like the one behind Glen Canyon Dam, or even The smaller one that you just referenced, which is O'Shaughnessy Dam on the Tuolumne River. That's
1: it, yes. Mm -hmm.
0: It doesn't really make sense to store water in that way anymore. And in the case of Hetch Hetchy, there's a gentleman named Spreck Rosecrans who's interviewed in the book. And he points out that there's already enough other storage in the Tuolumne system that San Francisco could keep their drinking water. And it would actually, if you took out O'Shaughnessy Dam it would actually open up some opportunities for San Francisco to acquire drought year rights that they don't have right now. And I guess the last thing that I'll mention on that front is a fairly recent development And California, to their credit, has really started to experiment on a large scale with this. Instead of storing water in a reservoir, why not store it underground? There's a couple experiments going on where water managers are recharging underground aquifers And especially in years like this one, there's going to be a massive surplus of water. And this is where most of our where all of our groundwater came from originally anyway. You divert the flow of a river into these underground storage areas, and then it doesn't evaporate and it's available for use in future years. You know, you may not be able to completely recharge some of the underground aquifers that we've depleted, but you're not going to lose 20% of that water to the sun either. So this is the kind of innovative, creative thinking that I think it's really going to be important to get us through what's looking like a very long emergency with the drought that we have.
1: Yeah. My understanding is that our local reservoir, the Lexington Reservoir, may be one of those that is feeding an underground supply. At least I've heard mm-hmm. that, but I haven't looked into it personally. I'm going to hold up for people. This is um, pages 98 and 99 of your book, where you compare 2020 to 2022 of what's happening with the colorado river and the reason this is so critical beyond your mention of this issue with that dam and needing to kind of tunnel it out so that water will actually be able to move is that the colorado river supplies much of california farmland and so if you're thinking about the food that we produce the hay that is grown it is all essentially coming from the tuolumne or from the colorado river like those are the two primaries for what we're seeing here. So, Central Valley, a lot of that gets um, water from the Tuolumne. We have aquifers that are diverting water from the Colorado River and from the Tuolumne. But ultimately, <laughs> if we run into an issue, the farmers get hit. Suddenly, they can't produce the hay they normally do. Food costs go way up. And this is something that we're already seeing. The price of hay went from, you know, roughly $20 for a bale of grass hay to Thirty-five, 40. It more than doubled. So, yeah. you know, it was like, it's gotten ridiculous. Food security is a
0: huge issue. And I don't want to take anything away from that. In the short term, California, because of their, the powerhouse nature of their agricultural output, has secured the senior most water rights in the Colorado basin. So they'll be the last to receive cuts. But our Thinking on issues like this is unfortunately very short term, and it also doesn't answer the question about what happens when the Colorado River stops flowing out of Glen Canyon Dam. Another huge issue with irrigated agriculture that I don't deal with in this book is the salinity, the increasing salinity of water as it's used in, for agriculture. The Colorado system is, is this is a huge problem. A lot of water waters a field and then drips back into the river and then is taken out again and waters another field. And in the process of being flowing through agricultural lands, it becomes more alkaline. And there are places, including in some of the richest growing regions in California, where the salinity of of the water has gotten so great that you can't really grow crops with it anymore. And like any agricultural problem, there are people that are addressing this, but I think what I appreciate about your podcast is it really advocates for a more holistic way of thinking about things. And I suppose I'm trying to do the same thing with this book. Instead of addressing all these individual problems that come up with a system that you have, like our system of dams and reservoirs and irrigation and water supply, instead of playing whack a mole with every problem that that causes, let's address the problem at its root. Let's take out a few dams that we don't need anymore. And I suspect that when we do that, we'll see that the results are so positive that we'll want to do it in some other places as well.
1: So I have a question about the Army Corps of Engineers and politicians that may or may not stand for the removal of some of these dams. Why does this remain such a political issue?
0: Entrenched ways of thinking and well-moneyed ways of thinking are the two main causes that I think of. Here in the Pacific Northwest, the federal agency that is really the bad guy, as far as I'm concerned, in matters of reforming what's happening in the Columbia Basin, that agency is called the Bonneville Power Administration. And it's this peculiar mix of public and private privilege and power, I guess, is the easiest way to put it. An aide to former Oregon Governor Ted Gulangowski told me once that the Bonneville Power Administration is the very worst of... The government and private sectors mixed into one. <laughs>
1: I don't know. PG and E might get them the running. <laughs> yeah, that's gonna... true. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we could talk about that. Well, and separately. So,
0: and really, then it becomes the age-old cause of most of a lot of our problems, which is just a, the very strictest adherence to profit over every other motive. And the Bonneville Power Administration generates about three and a half billion dollars a year in revenue, and they spread that wealth out by keeping, historically, by keeping power rates inside the Pacific Northwest low. But, you know, they're also a horribly mismanaged agency. They're $15 billion in debt, and they are obliged by federal law to restore salmon. And in my mind, the agency is criminally incompetent or inept because here's the law, here's what the law says you need to do, and they're not doing it.
1: So my husband once said to me something that I've seen proven out in these documentaries or looking at what would the world do if we suddenly stopped being here, Mm -hmm. right? I'm forgetting the name of one of them, but it was very popular. I think it was on the Discovery Network. And the whole premise was on day one of humans being gone, what the world looks like. On day five, on day 15, on day 25, he'd always said to me, You know, it takes a massive amount of labor to keep a dam operational and you'd be surprised how quickly they fail. And I'm like, okay, this is some end of the world thinking, how long would it take for a dam to fail? And then sure enough, you see this documentary that's created, like what would happen after humans. And they, I think within two weeks are saying that some of the outlets for the dam start to essentially clog with things like snails, you know? Mm Of course, right? Like they're all over my fish tank. So they're going to (laughs) be dams too. And the power it produces stops kind of running efficiently. But the reason you even called this book cracked, I mean, this is a crumbling infrastructure. A lot of these dams are in disrepair. They would cost an an incredible amount of money to repair to, let's say, what we would call today's building code for dams. So What does this look like and what do you think the likelihood is of us succeeding in getting a few of these dams removed in the near future?
0: Well, let me answer that question first by saying, I suppose I'm somewhat of a cynic in that (laughs) I think in investigating this issue and and other issues around the safety of all of our industrial endeavors, I think as a species, we're not nearly as good at long range planning as we pretend to be. And... (laughs) I think one of the most fascinating parts of Cracked is an interview with a engineering professor from UC Berkeley, his name is Robert B. And they call him Dr. Disaster because Dr. B has investigated everything from the space shuttle disaster to the Deepwater Horizon drilling fiasco. And he tells this great story about a young pilot from Boeing that kept visiting him in his office and saying, "Hey." I want to ask you about this and about that. And then I just want our planes to be safer. Well, that pilot was Chesley Sullenberger, the guy who landed the plane on the Hudson. And essentially, what Dr. B told me is that the dam industry needs the equivalent of Chesley Sullenberger to come in and reform what's going on. Dr. B was so appalled by what he's seen and investigated at Oroville Dam, which you'll remember the spillway at Oroville failed spectacularly back in 2017, he said, it's just a matter of time before one of these big dams fails. And I hate to say this, but I think it will be in the wake of a disaster like that, that we really start looking at a more rapid way of assessing not only the safety, but the value of all these projects. So. 100%.
1: Yeah. You can look at the PG&E issue with the fires all over California, right? We've known for a long time the solution. The solution is moving the power grid underground, right? Much like what you're saying, you know, bring the water and store it underground so that we don't have the evaporation issue. The evaporation issue also creates more storms that could be more impactful in future years, right? So keep some of the groundwater in place, Trees will continue to grow healthy. We're not going to run out of water as quickly. And then you also look at putting the power lines underground so we don't have them snapping back and hitting a dry, tender tree that will suddenly go up in flames and take out an entire hillside and then skip over a freeway and suddenly take out, you know, entire swaths of land, entire
0: neighborhoods, as we saw in the Paradise Fire. You
1: know, in my neck of the woods, you know, it's like we had the CZU lightning complex come through and the entire town of Scotts Valley got evacuated, some of which was probably just to get us out so that firemen had clear access without traffic because of how bad things got. But, you know, I had friends who lost their homes. My husband works for Joby Aviation. Many of the people that live in Ben Lomond credit Joby with saving their neighborhood. Because these last men standing essentially said, okay, well, we're going to protect this property. And that means we need to protect this access road. And so when everybody was leaving, and even the fire trucks weren't servicing that area, they were there with theirs. And so we're at this phase, we need some massive changes in how we are, we have built our infrastructure needs to be updated. It's that simple.
0: Well, then to me, then the question becomes, how do you inspire change? And I think, again, that's part of what your podcast is about. And I think of a South American or Chilean activist who I interview in the book named Juan Pablo Arrego. And he makes the case that I think is worth repeating that in order to inspire people to do these kinds of things, to take on this incredibly difficult work, we have to return to an appreciation of the aesthetic beauty of the natural world. We have to look to the kind of incredible reverence that somebody like John Muir had for a place like Yosemite and kind of mourn with John Muir, the loss of Yosemite's twin, which was Hetch Hetchy Valley buried behind O'Shaughnessy Dam. Glen Canyon, the namesake of that dam on the Colorado Glen Canyon was as I write in the book, one of the most beautiful places, perhaps on the entire continent, and it was buried hastily behind a dam in the early 60s. In order to foster the belief that we can return to some semblance of wholeness, we have to start with the premise that a beautiful thing is worth saving, right? And that, I think, is the ultimate message of this book, is start with that. Go find a place that spoke to you in your childhood or your adulthood and spend time there. Appreciate the beauty that's still there and know that taking on the difficult work of getting a dam removed or any other kind of stream restoration is going to create a world where you can sit down with your kids or your grandkids and say, hey, look, this place is better than it was when I was a kid. And that's because your parents' generation Wanted this to be that way for you guys. We wanted to create a world that was better for you than it has been for us. And I think that's what I hope this book, the attitude that it fosters in people that choose to pick it up.
1: Here, here. I am reminded of a conversation I had with Paul Hawken when I brought him on this podcast back in September, 2021, the release of his book, Regeneration, Ending the Climate Crisis in One Generation. He essentially begged, he pleaded our audience to get to know where they live and really understand the natural world around them because none of us in this modern world under this paved environment really understands the roots, the history, and even what the land was like before we were here. And so the only way to really reconnect with nature is to go to even a spot that's in the same ecosystem, but that hasn't been developed yet and just admire it, spend some time in it, Look at the bugs, the insects, the animals, be quiet in the space. Let it be that forest sound bath. Now I do this every day that I take a walk with my dog because I live next to an open space preserve. And then on the other side of the hill I'm on, I abut a redwood forest. And so I've got chaparral on one side and a redwood forest on the other with some natural creeks and streams. And so I take this three and a half mile walk, some of which is more civilized, but then get into this backwoods portion. And I just sit in this redwood gro- grove for a minute or so. There's one lone maple tree. I call her my friend Maple. <laughs> <laughs> it's far too old and looks like she's going to fall, but somebody took the trouble to cable her. So she's still up, right? Mm-hmm. And just enjoy being in the woods for just a moment.
0: I think that, yeah, and- that kind of experience. Is so important because we do know in the abstract what we want the world to look like. Right. And I guess, how do you know that you love your partner, your husband or your wife? It's not an abstract thing. It's this specific and intimate thing because, you know, their habits, you know, what you love about them and maybe what you don't love so much. And it's immediate (laughs) to your feelings. Right. It's not something that just Mm -hmm. exists in your head. And I think loving any portion of the earth is kind of the same affair. We've become this nation of urban nomads and staying still in a place long enough to really get not only to know it on an intellectual level, but to love it requires time and requires sticking to a certain place. So what you're doing, that simple act of walking your dog around the open space, that's To me, where all the restoration in the world that we need begins is just spending that time appreciating that segment of the ecosystem that you live in that's still intact enough for you to take a deep breath and go, wow, this is a gorgeous spot.
1: Well, I feel like I already have the answer to one of my next questions, but I want to ask it anyway, because you never know. You might come up with some other crazy gem that we just need to know or section of the book. Now, If you were to define what your hope for the future is, could you describe that for us?
0: Sure. The final chapter of the book is called What Spirits Might Wear in 2050. And it's a vision of those three rivers that are depicted in in that final chapter, the Tuolumne, the Colorado, and the snake, all running free. And I think the vision is a little bit flighty, I suppose. But it's also meant to inspire, because I think to get to a place that I'm envisioning at the end of the book in mid-century, you have to start imagining it now. And the reason I wrote yet another book about dams and rivers after I'd already written one is that I think that this work is not only urgent, and when it's done, it's done in a way that's really powerful, but I think that... Rivers provide us with the easiest access to finding that spot, as we already discussed about where you can sit down and see that the world is still a beautiful thing and that we owe it to ourselves and our children and grandchildren to make it as good as we can possibly make it so that they can do the same thing for their ensuing generations when they're our age. So it's really ultimately a book about rivers and dams, but it's also about hope. So I hope it inspires some hope in people.
1: Would that it inspires people on both sides of the aisle to agree, shake hands, and work towards that preservation of the world's natural beauty. I'm also somewhat of a skeptic. I've heard people make some really ridiculous comments like, well, what? You know, if you take the dams out, they'll just have you know, beavers will create their own natural dams.
0: (laughs) Right. Or the flooding argument. You know, that's probably the biggest mythology about dams is that they control floods. And there's actually a few dams that do that kind of thing. But even the giant dams that we have here in my neck of the woods provide almost nothing in the way of flood control. They're designed to facilitate navigation and power production. And the flooding is, as we saw here 25 years ago, when the Portland airport almost flooded because the Columbia was about to overtop its banks, the dams can't really control those things. And then the illusion that you can control those things only makes a disaster worse when you straighten the banks with levees along a river, when that increases the velocity of the water. And so when the river finally overtops its banks, you have a bigger problem than what you would have had if you had just left it alone. So yeah, We seem to insist in all of the generations of the past century and a quarter on deploying these grand feats of engineering without thinking too much about the consequences in both the short and long term. So it's time to sort of step back from that and recognize that any ecosystem that evolves over hundreds of thousands or even millions of years probably has its own inherent wisdom that's worth respecting
1: we have something to learn from nature and we just keep not learning it yet we think we're the smartest species on the planet yeah. <laughs> <It's> just yeah <laughs> i watched a video on tiktok of all places recently just about the simple army ant right or the farmer ant rather and the farmer ant has been literally farming aphids for 50 million years <laughs> and so the fact that a critter that we think of as a pest could actually have a complex kind of system of procuring its food that really kind of mirrors something of our own is yet another thing that we somehow say, oh, but we're different because. I will say we're different because we really change our environment. And we do things like create dams and then look at them like they might just be a spigot we could turn on or off with need. But well, that's it, not really, what are are. really
0: an illusion that humans love to entertain that we can control things. When you're talking about aphids, My youngest, he's 15, came home from biology class, which he loves. And I said, tell me about what you learned in biology today. And he said, well, there's a kind of mite that lives in your eyelashes and comes out at night and has sex on your face. (laughs) And I was just blown away. I was also disgusted, but of course I wanted to know more. And the more we, little factoids like that, as gross as they may be, and other things that we have yet to learn about the way the world really functions, you know, we can relinquish the idea of having to control every aspect of the natural world. We can start to appreciate the things that it does furnish us and live with the things that it sometimes threatens us with as well. So again, I, I, my hope with the book is that it fosters that kind of appreciation for things that on the surface may not be all that pleasant to, to think about, but I think lead to a bigger picture that is way more enticing than the one, the future that we're facing if we don't change our ways.
1: Well, I got to tell you, after your book arrived, I spent some time by our local river. And as I was mentioning before we started recording, its course has changed and that has come because we had unprecedented rainfall. The trail is eroded. And I now have to walk less far (laughs) to get to a very beautiful sandy beach and so this weekend on both Saturday and Sunday, I sat out there with my boys and we actually noticed some beautiful steelhead trout in the river, some quite large trout. We could just hang it out under this rocky area. And then a green heron, the first I've ever seen here, just showed up. And I was like, where is that bird from? It's beautiful. And just being in this environment and spending time doing a whole lot of nothing on the bank of a river for three hours with boys that are essentially throwing rocks into the creek or running up and down the sandbanks and rolling over was the best time I've had in a long time with my boys. And I just have to say, it's like being out there in the natural world. it's, It's soul cleansing for you. Kids get all sorts of creative energy from that. They came home from that and wanted to go back the next day for the same thing. So I just think we need to remind ourselves, too, that it's something that feeds the soul. Mm -hmm. And so if it feels like a chore, it won't once you get out there. Just make some time to commune with nature. And, you know, I don't care what side of the political spectrum you're on. You'll love it.
0: Yeah. As you were describing that, I just had goosebumps on my arm thinking about every August. I try to go to this spot in the sawtooth mountains in Idaho, where there's still a few salmon that make it almost a thousand miles from the Pacific ocean up to this tiny little, relatively tiny little Creek that they spawn in. And, mm-hmm. uh, I'm hoping to take both my kids there this summer so they can see that. And it, it's gotten to the point where you start to worry, like, is this the last year that they're going to make it that far? But once you get there, all those kind of thoughts about what's going to happen in the future. And this is maybe why I got, chills in my arm when you were talking is what the any time along a river i think manages to do is to focus all of your energy into the present moment so you stop worrying about what's happened in the past and stop fretting over what might happen in the future and you're just focused on the really beautiful thing that's right in front of you and that can be a couple steelhead trout under a rock or chinook salmon that have swum a thousand miles from the ocean or it it can be a a water dipper, it can be a blue heron, it can be an osprey, it can be all those things in combination, but it it just focuses your attention on the present in a way that some people undertake uh, years of intensive religious practice to get to. I think the river provides us with that, just with the privilege of sitting next to it. So yeah, if I had to choose between somebody reading my book or sitting next to a river for an hour. I mean, I hope they do both, but I might advocate for the river first and then the reading second.
1: Well, maybe I'll take the book with me and just hang out there and read as my boys frolic too. I will say it's a, I think it's a quote by Confucius and you'll probably correct me because you spend so much time thinking about rivers, but something about you never step in the same River twice or the same person, oh, never the same yeah. person.
0: Heraclitus, the Greek philosopher Heraclitus. said you can't step in the same river twice. And then somebody else, some other smart person said, you can't even really step in the same river once because of the nature of moving water. So yeah. uh, I think both of those things are true. Yeah. Wow.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I've thoroughly enjoyed this and I'd love to invite you back when you have another story sure. you want to tell. I'd love to see if you have any closing thoughts you'd like to share or a question that you wish I'd asked that perhaps I haven't.
0: Yeah, the book closes with a thought that one of the reasons that we love rivers so much is we are, see ourselves reflected in the nature of the way they flow and change. So I would suggest just as a whimsical thought here at the end of the interview, consider yourself to be a river just on a as a as on a whimsy and maybe consider how it is that the health of your favorite stream and the health of you might be intertwined. And I think that might also help figure out some ways large and small that you can improve not only your life, but the waterways that are such an integral part of it. So that's what I would end with.
1: Perfect. Again, thank you so much for joining me today.
0: Thanks, Karina. Thanks for having me.
1: To pick up Stephen Hawley's new book, Cracked, The Future of Dams in a Hot, Chaotic World, Visit your local bookstore or even get the audiobook if you prefer to listen to your books. That said, as I mentioned earlier, the book is absolutely beautiful. So if you go that route, perhaps consider doing both things audiobook and print. That way you can pay forward your copy to someone else that will love it too and put more good into the world that way. Visit our show notes for direct links to find your copy today. And when you visit caremorebebetter.com, you'll find so much more including complete transcripts for this episode, expanded show notes, and bonus features that you won't find anywhere else. You'll find Steve's TED Talk embedded on our site, which I didn't mention to him, but I'm planning to do that as well, and links to Rent Damned to Extinction for only $4.99 on Vimeo. You'll also find links and additional resources that we mentioned during today's episode. While you're visiting caremorebebetter.com, please sign up for our newsletter subscribers receive a welcome gift. It's our five-step guide to get you organized and inspire your activism. It can serve as a great project management tool too, and so it doesn't necessarily have to be an activistic path that you're pursuing. Now, if you have feedback or want to suggest a future topic to the show, please send me an email or you can leave me a voicemail directly on the site too. You can just click on that microphone icon in the bottom right-hand corner and leave me a message. Thank you, listeners and watchers, now and always, for being a part of this pod and this community, because together we really can do so much more. We can care more. We can be better. We can even tear down our water walls, return our rivers to their former glory, bring back flourishing fish stocks, and save the orcas. This is doable. Spread the word. And we can do it together. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good.